0: No, wait, yeah, uh, so there's a raise hand.
1: Oh, there is one? Oh, it's on yeah. the Mac, not on the Mac client. Oh, I'm yeah. using the Mac client. Yeah, oh. I, I also do not have the
2: raise
3: hand. I don't client. have the raise I hand. I don't know how to do oh, it. Oh, that's so reactions. funny.
4: <laughs> All right, hello, and welcome to our very first ever episode of Beam Radio. You can find us at beamraid.io, which is, a. I think we're pretty proud of that clever uh, domain name. This is our All Things Elixir Erlang and Beam podcast. We are going to be bringing you episodes with exciting, interesting, and fascinating guests. We're going to be bringing you episodes that involve uh, conversations and topics between our wonderful panel of hosts. And I think we'd like to begin by introducing some of those hosts before we get into today's content. So I am Sophie de Benedetto. I'm an engineer at GitHub and I've been working with Elixir for a couple of years now. And I'm gonna pass it over to Alex Kumos Alex.
1: Howdy howdy? Uh, yeah, so I work at the company called Boulevard. Uh, I've been doing Elixir now for I think it's been almost five years I guess I could say half a decade which sounds pretty pretty old in, the, in, in computer land. Um, yeah, I'm the, the creator of the, uh, the Twitter tip series. I've written a couple of libraries. Uh, excited to be here.
4: Thanks, hey, Alex, excited to have you. We also have with us Josh Adams. Hey, Josh.
3: Hey there. So I'm Josh. I've been doing Elixir stuff for forever, uh, since 0.10 at least. And uh, I run a consultancy that builds products for people at dbadbadba.com. And uh, yeah, that's me. I do Elixir all the time.
4: And we've got Mika Calafil. Hey, Mika.
5: Hey, guys. I'm Mika, and I work for a company called Blitz. We work with big data in gaming, and I've been using Elixir for around six years to deal with big data and uh, other high concurrency situations.
4: And we also have Lars Wickman.
2: Yeah, so I'm an independent consultant, uh, which is mostly a fancy way of saying freelance developer and general tech enthusiast. So I primarily work in Elixir, but I have a number of stacks under my belt from years and years of development. Uh, I work both internationally and and remotely uh, since I'm based out of a rural part of Sweden's West Coast. Uh, I live there with my wife and we try to grow some vegetables and raise a child. Uh, And you can find my thoughts on my blog and my newsletter on underjord.io. think we'll link that because my pronunciation screws people up
4: I know how to spell it but I wouldn't be able to guess the spelling uh, from your obviously very authentic accent and before I pass it over to our very last uh, co-host Bruce Tate I will just comment and say that all of our listeners will get a chance to get to know our hosts a little bit better over the next couple of weeks because we're going to be adopting a format that I'm pretty excited about where each of us will sort of take turns hosting the episode, coming up with topics, and just kind of taking people on a journey of whatever we're finding to be particularly interesting, engaging, or exciting about Elixir and the Beam right now. So with that in mind, I will hand it over to the last host on our panel. We have Bruce Tate. Hey, Bruce. Hey,
0: everybody. I've been involved with Elixir for a long time, since, since before it turned 1.0, believe it or not. And it's been quite a journey. So along the way, I've written a couple of books with Jose um, and Chris: the Programming Phoenix book, with Jose, the Adopting Elixir book, and then and then a few others as well, like the Designing Elixir Systems with OTP. And I'm currently writing a book with our very own Sophie, the Programming Live View book. And so that should be a lot of fun. But one of the things that I do in my work time is actually the Groxio site. You can think of Groxio as the word grok.io. We actually have the IO formatted as a one and a zero. So it's someone that groks or understands computer languages. That's what we're going for. So we help people explore topics around Elixir and the Julia language and other programming languages.
4: Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that, Bruce. For anyone that hasn't checked out Croxio or gone through any of their courses, I'm sure I'm not alone in highly recommending them. They're really nicely, I think, sized for people that maybe don't have a ton, a ton of free time. There's like a lot of options on there for being able to get into new topics, really get your hands dirty and just start building cool stuff right away, which I really love and appreciate. So definitely check it out. Lots of great stuff on there, including some stuff on live view. If you just can't wait to get your hands on our book, you can go and do some uh, tutorials and some courses on Graxio. All right. So uh, we have for our very first episode ever, our very first host ever, Lars Vickman. Lars, I know you already told us a little bit about yourself, but give us that full introduction. And then I think we have some questions for you.
2: So I think I've been dealing with Elixir for, oh, let's see. It's almost four years now, I think, Um, ever since I left my safe employment uh, and went out on my own. I basically was very curious about Elixir up front there. And then when I started to run my own business, I also started to invest myself deeper in Elixir and the ecosystem. Uh, I'm a self-taught developer, so I've been through... Like it started with HTML and then I've gone through PHP, originally some Perl, but PHP and onward through like the LAMP stack and some Python. And at some point I got the chance to actually start working professionally as a developer. So that was sort of my path into being a professional developer. I have no formal training, but I have many, many years of mistakes to learn from. That's the basis on which I build my, my career.
0: Yeah, Lars, I'm, I'm curious, what was your very first impression of Elixir? Where did you find it? And what did you think when you very first saw the language as somebody who was self-taught? That's a good question.
2: Um, my first introduction to it was via uh, my CTO at the time, who was uh, an old Rubyist. So he had it via the Ruby heritage uh, but I was doing Python, so I had never heard of Jose, I had never heard of Chris McCord or any of that, but he uh, was very enthusiastic about Ecto. He was very enthusiastic about the history of Erlang and all the resiliency. He sort of pitched me on it, and I ended up looking at a few different talks. Uh, this was around the time of Channels and Presence, I believe. So I saw those, and I stumbled across the Nerves talks at the same time. And since I'd been playing a lot with the Raspberry Pis uh, with Python, uh, I decided to investigate nerves at some point and try to do things with nerves. And I found it very satisfying, very interesting. So that was sort of my path in. And the language itself was uh, both very confusing and very uh, approachable. <laughs> like I had never done proper functional programming at all. I'd seen some attempts in JavaScript, but I didn't really see the point. But reading the guide on the Elixir website was basically enough to to clear most of the hurdles I encountered. And then there was a lot of habits to break and like figuring out that recursion can be fine and infinite recursion uh, can even be fine in this in this weird runtime. I think nerves helped a lot to just dive past some of the um, some of the stuff you can get stuck on with like if you focus on the website uh like phoenix and ecto you have that whole domain to deal with but nerves meant i was actually working a little bit closer to the beam uh, and a bit i guess closer to the metal but i don't have to care about it uh, so nerves i thought think was a very good introduction also it's a smaller community which means the slack is actually manageable.
5: One question I have for you, Lars, is what was your first nerve project?
2: I think my first one was a Hello World of some sort. Uh, I couldn't really say uh, my absolute first. But my first uh, real effort to, for one, learn Elixir properly and to really get into Nerves was porting a Python library for an e-ink display that I, that I enjoyed using. Um, called inky and i ported that from python to very non-idiomatic elixir and then then people in the nerves community actually helped me clean things up and taught me tons about what i was doing so uh, i have a lot of love for that that crew uh, ever since so inky even got attention on like hacker news and stuff so that was super gratifying and very very motivating as a start in a new ecosystem there's a lot of interest in elixir and uh, raspberry pi's in general but for the hacker news crowd elixir f- does have a sort of sweet spot apparently
3: that inky post on Hack News was my introduction to lars
0: Josh eventually built the talk that got me into nerves. Where you had this this elaborate thing where where you built this um, this blinking LED, but they kind of had like a zoom out of the camera and and you know somebody um, was smoking a cigar and like had a had an after dinner jacket and was holding you know nodding with a blinking LED and playing George Michael, never gonna dance again.
3: We installed Erlang on a on an Android device via an APK and then connected to an elixir application running on a raspberry pi to control uh either blinky lights or ultimately a tank little remote control tank that drove around
0: did you also have a drone on stage too
3: yeah i also one of my earliest elixir things was the um the porting of the library so i ported the parrot ar drone library from ruby to to elixir and flew that thing around and ran it into a wall because um, It was great. There's just actually not any security uh, or safety mechanisms on that drone.
0: So Lars, you never know what you're going to be starting with one of these Hello World-style projects.
2: No, it was actually very cool because people in the community did pick up the library, and I actually got to see that people had done things with it, which was immensely uh, entertaining. And like, I think that's actually my first proper open source effort i've contributed like issues and stuff in the past but not really invested myself and I think the transition from employed to self-employed i also had a bit of a break at the start and that allowed me to to re- actually uh, pursue uh, connecting with the community a bit and that was that was a great experience. Uh, the response is tremendous. The community is very responsive to new
1: people, in my experience. When you went through that exercise of porting the library from Python uh, to Elixir, how did you feel like the style changed, right? You went from Python, which is more or less OO, to Elixir, which is FP. You said that initially you maybe didn't write so idiomatic uh, Elixir code, but how did you? you know, how was that path from taking it uh, from Python-y Elixir to, you know, elixir elixir
2: so i will say that most of the process was very straightforward thankfully most of the hard work like uh, integrating with the hardware on the lower level let's see if i don't remember i think it's uses spi and gpio and both of those are covered by frank Hunluth's, uh libraries i started with elixir ale and then i switched to circuits after a while i believe that's the trickiest part probably um but there was a lot of like just copy pasting and trying to figure out and then make it work and I think most of it was just understanding what the code was doing rather than any real problems translating it to Elixir. Um, I probably wrote it in a fairly OOP oriented style with like a struct instead of an object basically uh, at the start and it's still sort of that but We've, we've cleaned it up since a bit. Uh, the trickiest part, or rather the part that's not ideal, I would say, is some of the, um, like when you're dealing with a screen, you're dealing with a frame buffer or like a, an array of pixels, basically. Ideally, you would just want to switch out a single pixel value. And that's not a strong suit here. But this is a very, very small screen, so it doesn't really matter performance-wise. Uh, because it's it's a very small uh ink display, so it's, it's not a lot of pixels. Everything was mostly straightforward. I mean, originally, very much like the module was like a class in Python to start with. Uh, at a later point, it's like, no, now it's a gen server. It does a few different things. It allows us to not push unnecessary amounts of updates to the device, keep some state, that sort of thing. It, it's definitely been refined from from being a very straight port into into being something slightly more elegant and testable
3: all right so since that post was actually my introduction to lars i have questions about lars prior to that post so so my first question is uh, what was what was like your your earliest programming memory like i'm playing with a computer and i like that it's doing a thing
2: i think the first piece of programming i did was actually c plus from a book i pushed that quite far and then they tried to teach me oop without ever teaching me how to make a button and i did not want any of that i did not want more theory i wanted to make a button but i had only been able to make text programs so i got pissed off and stopped (laughs) Uh, and then at some point i encountered a brief guide to html and that's where i found proper traction <laughs> so i had done some c plus programming and actually written some files and read some files and all that made some interactive stuff but it really took hold when when i was able to put things on the interwebs so uh, the early modem era html that's that's where it really took hold for me and then my first language there was JavaScript at a certain point and then some Perl. That was the first time I felt like I was programming a computer. before then there was a lot of toying around in like the office suite and whatever whatever I could build things with I think it's always been about the building for me
4: Lars as our host for today you get to set the agenda for the rest of the podcast. So what are we talking about?
2: Well since I have the opportunity of just hoarding the podcast and uh, setting the topic. Uh, I wanted to talk about the idea that the beam can be your entire application. Uh, and I know we've all been in a conversation with Sasha Juric on this uh, very topic. Uh, but I want to dig deeper. and I want I want to go through it with you guys because I think all of us have some experience in different parts of this uh, this space and this thing. The way I see the idea of Be- the beam running your entire application is that you can get rid of a lot of things that are involved in any high-level language web application. Like, you might not need nginx. You might not need a specific application server. Uh, you might not need even a special data store. That's that's a big topic of conversation. Um, but like cron job scheduling or getting certificates via let's encrypt like we have uh, Sasha Jurek's site encrypt library can give you let's encrypt libraries great inside your beam application you never need to call out we have good web performance without needing to hide our application server behind nginx and work like live view and channels and presence it feels like we are getting more and more capabilities to build an entire web application front to back with just what the Beam provides. I think there's a power there where we, you can reduce the complexity and you can get rid of a lot of knowledge and unnecessary know how. Sort of like, I think you can strip a lot of things away if you try to stick entirely to working within the Beam with Erlang, Elixir, and the other languages uh, like S- Site Encrypt builds on the Erlang crypto libraries, as far as I'm aware. If you want job processing, you can just pull in Oban or one of the other options. There are a few. Uh, if you want scheduling, uh, Oban or Quantum, or like there are so many libraries that allow you to not add another piece of software. You don't need a special cache, you don't need a special data store you don't need a special web server and i think that's an interesting idea and i think it's a different paradigm than what most people are dealing with rather than having a language plus a web framework plus a standard uh, linux web stack sort of uh, you end up with a platform and a paradigm and you can probably build everything inside of it on top of linux usually what do you guys think about this concept? I'm very curious to hear your hear your thinking because I rant about this a lot on my blog.
0: Yeah, I think that one of the things that you gain with with such an approach is the idea of marketing um, for people and, and so whenever you think about like a marketing move, right? Um, you, you think about audience. And there's a tremendous pinup demand for something that works. And, and deploys kind of like the Ruby on Rails stuff does, but has um, kind of the, the backbone and, and the juice to pull off something that's more complicated. Um, and since you do have the juice in the language proper, then you can get like a beautiful simplicity. Like you don't have to know everything about Kubernetes, right? You don't might not need Kubernetes at all. You don't have to have all the knowledge that it takes to build the distributed applications that every one page app has become, right? With all this JavaScript, communications back and forth, creating every single different route, you don't have to have all that stuff. And one of the things that um, that kind of jumps to the forefront here, I think, is that the, the, the publishing house O'Reilly became big by the LAMP architecture, right? The Linux, Apache, what? MySQL and PHP, and and you know you could you could plug in Python instead of the PHP or Ruby, you know, kind of the honorary P with the with the bottom of the R broken off. But but I think that it gives you an, an opportunity. What was the acronym that you mentioned, Lars? Was it Pedal or something like that? I've
2: definitely heard more talk of the Pedal stack recently. So that's Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind, Alpine, and LiveView. We're talking about the web stack and the system language and basically forward onto the front end because everyone knows at this point you're running on linux i guess i guess linux just won but this talks about how you can build an application that basically you incrementally add minimal complexity as needed
0: Yeah, I think that's extraordinarily powerful from a marketing standpoint where you can basically say, "Okay, what's your deployment? Well, have you tried pedal? Right. And so then then everybody immediately knows what you're talking about. You you are, are automatically say we're stripping out all this this middleware, all this this center architecture and we're replacing it with something that's becoming increasingly well understood and structured.
1: Just to rewind a little bit, I think the Beam as a whole has really raised the ceiling of what's possible on a single platform, right? Like uh, I am writing apps in Node and uh, PHP and always always think to myself, I feel limited here because I don't have some sort of concurrency model that's baked into the language. And I always have to rely on another tool to do what I need to get done. And that ceiling is way, way higher on the beam. Whereas, I no longer need to reach for another tool to do some certain, you know, some certain job. I can just use the facilities that are available to me on the beam. And I think the pedal stack has done that for for web stacks now, where the ceiling is higher, where you can get more done before you need to introduce additional complexity. And uh, I always think back to Sasha Eric's table of uh, like, um, where it compares a traditional stack and a beam stack. So you have, you know, web server and there's NGINX in the other stack column and then Erlang in the, 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 uh, the beam column. And then, you know, Sasha kind of enumerates uh, all these other things. But I think like live view and the pedal stack has kind of done that too, where you no longer need tools, like say Cypress for testing. You have that built into live view and you can get your job done so much faster. Um, so I think, I think in general, all these, all these beam technologies are are really raising the bar as to what's possible on a single platform. And I think, I think with that, you get that immense productivity and uh, and throughput.
4: Yeah. And I think like, I've really, I've really seen that developer productivity impact again and again in my previous uh, company at the Flatiron School. I think in the like two years that I was there, we probably launched into production, like two or three Greenfield Elixir apps, one of which was like a, contract that we had undertaken with this external ed tech company. And that one in particular, we had like three months to basically build a pretty significant system with this other team from this other company. All the requirements were more or less unknown. But I really think because of a lot of the tools, Lars, that you're bringing up, because it's It's not only that Elixir is a language that I think has like a very gentle learning curve and people can really jump in and get their hands dirty, but because you can do so much with so little and keep it all in one place, um, just the way that those teams were able to deliver was truly like astounding to me. And I think Elixir and all of the tools that the Beam offer just played a huge role in that.
0: One of the things that you mentioned, Sophie, and I think one of the things that you do such a good job writing about is this um, gentle learning curve, but... One of the things that I've noticed with LiveView is that the curve, it keeps going up, but it doesn't get steeper as as concepts get more complicated. Like one of the chapters that that I just finished editing was, um, so we did this, this thing where we've taken a relatively new Elixir developer and we've said, okay, now we can refactor this code using macros. Well, not really full for macros, but just using macros where the pattern is very clean where we can say all of the configuration and all of the code related to a particular kind of chart, like a bar chart, can be packaged together. So there's a case where um, kind of you can can rely on functional programming basics and just a little bit more effort and get a much higher level of usability. And I think that both Jose and Chris McCord have become very good at exposing those those concepts where you can carve out as much complexity as you need to do a particular job. And that's that's a wonderful testament to that team.
2: I think about the learning curve, one thing I've realized about how I've tackled languages previously is... At the start, I did not dive into like reading my reading the code of my dependencies. Like the the dependencies I brought in in other languages were like, no, uh, a, some god on the internet wrote this. I I daren't look at it. It's too complex, or maybe I did look in there and then it called out to C and I was lost. Uh, lost at C. Hmm. But what you get with this type of stack is that you can basically deal with the same paradigm as far as you can push it so uh, from the very back end and up onto your live view you are dealing with elixir you might need to deal with some JavaScript because that's the world we live in uh, that's not always terrible I hear Alpine's good I haven't tried it I'm very keen to but I think something that to to your marketing point Bruce, What Rails apparently did very well, I'm from the Django Python side, but I think they're largely equivalent, is that you can do a lot without going outside your language. And similarly, PHP and WordPress and all the CMSs that people have been doing wild things with throughout the years, like PHP was successful because all you had to do was PHP. And I think if we can reach the point where all you have to do is Elixir, that's a pitch that very few languages can push as far as we can with Elixir, Erlang, and the Beam, because of the capabilities of the platform.
0: I'm not even sure that we even need to get there, Lars. Like, if you if you win the um, the mindshare battle with this word pedal, right? Um, you know, if you start from the the standpoint that you're including Phoenix, Elixir, and um, and Live View, you know, just even if you replace a few of those elements. With the beautiful abstractions all the way up and down the stack, then we can bring in beam languages. We can, we have clean interfaces because we, we're on a beam language that has such good concurrency that we can, we can talk to things um, very cleanly. Like relational databases, like other HTTP services, um, we could even drop down to a low-level communication if we need to. I think that by winning that pedal mind mindshare, you basically allow the tentacles to go deeper. You know, thus the Beam Radio brand.
4: Yeah, I really, I really feel like Elixir exposes the perfect patterns here. Like you can go so far with just Elixir and just Phoenix, and then the way that let's say you know, ecto chain sets are built or the way that the live view framework is built means that when you've taken just elixir like absolutely as far as you can and you need to bring in something different or you need to work with those building blocks in a slightly different way. Um, that that moment of like oh God like how do I do this thing, how do I add in a little bit of custom js and live view or oh, I need to build a form but i'm not persisting this data like you know. Live view has JS interop and the framework answers the question of where you put this code. Ecto supports schema change sets because you can use the Ecto change set module, you know, just like you would any other Elixir module. So I feel like these patterns of composability that you find like all the way from the very bottom in the Elixir libraries and frameworks that we're, you know, using every day just makes it so easy to go super, super far with these raw tools and then start to extend them in ways that, are just really sane and make sense, and you can learn more about that in the live View book and as well as in many other sources.
0: Yeah, I could see your voice kind of coming through, and it, it, I I read about these just just earlier um, today. You know, as as I was editing <laughs> the book, it's kind of um, kind of fun to hear the the echo of of you know Sophie's philosophies and kind of as they're dovetailing with mine. It's it's gratifying
4: well if you read about it it's because i probably wrote it after talking to you and learning stuff from you so it's a good back and forth
0: yeah i think it's
2: incredibly important that we have this uh, powerful uh, way to interrupt with other languages other beam languages specifically but also other languages like the beam is fairly uh, fairly great at like orchestrating other languages Uh, i still find that there's a, an enormous power in being able to leverage a single language just for, for the sake of beginners, mostly. Because learning multiple languages is very hard. Uh, I'm curious to hear what your you guys' thoughts are on the drawbacks of this approach. Because it's it might not all be roses to shove everything you're trying to do inside, into the beam. So I'm curious to hear if you see problems with this, you guys.
4: I'm sure there are lots of problems that people will point out. I just wanted to add one more thing before I move on. Lars, don't you feel like this kind of answers that frustration that you had? And you said you were learning C++ and you just wanted to make a button and you know, eventually you found your way into HTML and you felt like you were productive and you were building things. And I feel like this is, this is gonna answer that experience for, for beginners who are coming into the community and maybe even just first learning how to program. They're going to be able to build stuff and see it work like right away just within this one framework and this one set of languages
5: being able to build stuff in a language and actually being able to like see results right away is is really fantastic and it's also one of the powers of using beam especially when onboarding new people it's it's been incredibly easy i've onboarded like dozens of people now and it's one of the easiest setups Uh, i came from like a javascript background before and onboarding people to those applications would sometimes take like up almost a month and they wouldn't be useful for almost a month. With Beam or Elixir, it's it's basically been like we've gotten people on up and running within a day or maybe even a week, uh, it's so quick. And I think that's one of the wonderful things about having everything in one. I, I think there are some downsides though to trying to fit everything into that package. For example, caching is one big thing that you can do in Elixir and oftentimes you want to, uh, once you start getting to higher scale, then you might start want to adding, adding things like Redis in, to eliminate like the copying around, uh, you could use Minesia alternatively, but I think there's some downsides when you try and put in too much into that Beam application. Although I do think it replaces a lot.
0: You know, I think there's also this problem. There's a man named Ted Neward. We used to do this tour called No Fluff Just Stuff, the Java Tour. So Ted and I were giving this talk where we were talking about um, how Java had permeated like all ecosystems and you were doing nothing but Java. And why would anybody ever want to do anything else? I think I said at at one point, we've landed at this place with one true language to rule them all. And then Ted leans in and says, and in the darkness, bind them. (laughs) So I think that anytime that you have too much happening in any one place, we've got to be careful so we don't kind of rope the whole industry into one place again, you know, because, you know, you, you gain a little bit with that uniform um, ecosystem, but you lose an awful lot too.
3: I'll just introduce some real practicality. If you don't have a very compelling reason not to use Postgres to store your database, then just put it in Postgres because operationally it's a solved problem.
4: Yeah. Coming from uh, some recent professional experiences working with a legacy database that was brought in it's called Orango. Uh, don't invent a database. Yeah. Don't invent a database is my advice to anyone.
3: I'm all for not using Postgres to store data that has properties that Do not make it a good fit for postgres in your use case but i have also seen people synchronize their data to files manually and have no means for like followers or slave databases or whatever and then wonder why operations suck yeah
2: i think that's sort of where where you have to be a little bit mindful with this approach i think it works very very far Uh, but there are some conventions are in place with a good reason for example postgres is very very tricky to argue your way out of or if you do uh, you might be very wrong Uh, usually it's a good choice it's a stable choice and i think there is a challenge when you when you sort of fight convention uh, because making the beam your entire application is not the conventional way of software development elsewhere but i also think that there is a sort of a trend towards uh, validating the idea of live view. Like recently Basecamp released Hotwire, uh, which is mostly focused on rails but should work for other, other ecosystems as well. And I feel like that's a very strong validation of the idea of Liveview. Uh, I just think Liveview does it probably better.
4: And on that very excellent and well-said note, I think we're getting ready to wrap up this, our very first episode of BEAM Radio. So thank you to all of our hosts. Thank you, especially to Lars for leading us through as our main host, let's say, of this first episode. And thank you to our sponsor, Graxia, which is, as we've said, career fuel for programmers. So thanks, everybody. See you next time.